Let's pray. Lord, first this morning, I want to pray for Robert Cook and uh, Lone Oak Baptist Church. Lord, I pray for his uh, marriage, for his family. Lord, I pray that he is wrecked by um, the challenge of leading and loving and shepherding rightly as a husband and as a uh, father. Lord, I pray that he is undone and humbled. pray that in that place somehow that he finds worship and he finds a desperation and neediness for you that then he can maybe be used for something Lord I pray that he will have a uh, daily weekly reminder of his inability to do anything rightly apart from you pray for his study time Lord that it is rich and robust that he is being undone disassembled and that as he grows downward that you are more visible to him and he sees holiness and glory and majesty and wonder and is gushing over into his preaching and his shepherding. Lord, we pray for that little church, Lone Oak Baptist, Lord, we pray that it will just be overwhelmed with the gospel. We pray for the people that they'll be salty and bright and aromatic, not through man's scheme, not through any special man-designed program, but thus just through the preaching and teaching of the word and the seeking to obey together. Lord, we pray that you'll be glorified in the way they live in love. We pray that in whatever way possible, feasible, tangible or not, that we're in shared ministry with them, partnership, as well as the other Christian churches in this community, guard our hearts from ever having a spirit of competition. Lord, also this morning we want to pray for the church in Kazakhstan. Lord, we lift up believers there, the few that are there, Pray for those believers that are in families where their whole family has disowned them, that they will have just a sweet opportunity. They'll recognize their opportunity to shine brightly in a dark place. Or whatever it takes for your name and your glory to be on display, if it takes suffering, then we ask for that, Lord. Ultimately, we want you to be famous. Lord, we do pray for peace, though. We pray for a time of um, peace where the gospel can be shared, where you can be enjoyed out loud freely. Pray for Jake and Stephanie on the field that they can just enjoy you so openly without fear of uh, pain or death, that they can just enjoy you out loud. Lord, we pray that you will be savored as a result of that, that you've got lost sheep there that are hearing your voice even as Jake and Stephanie serve. Lord, we turn this time over to you this morning. We pray in these next few minutes that you'll be glorified and honored and enjoyified while we just tune out everything and even forget about ourselves for the next few minutes. Pray that you'll tune out all of the distractions of... Uh, Frustrating morning, kids frustrated over what they have to wear. The hectic work of trying to get people out the door with hair combed and teeth brushed, Bible in hand. Lord, I pray that we can just put aside all the frustrations of just this humanity and that just for a moment in these next few minutes that we can step into the throne room and enjoy you and marvel at you. We can savor you and we can worship you. I pray that you'll pour me out in the next few minutes.
and speak in spite of me. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to John chapter 13. Beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. Saturday nights, I don't sleep too well. Some Saturday nights are worse than others. Last night, I had dreams of sections of the sanctuary being empty. I had dreams of a parking lot partially full, partially empty. And I think what... Satan has been working on me on on these last few weeks is knowing that as we go back to John chapter 13, really John 13 through 17, that it's this sea of red and that the consumers just won't hang. And you might think that's cool, but it's not cool because there's something in me that hopes that a consumer at some point as he hears the gospel or hears the story long enough that he'll begin to find purchase and the Lord will change him into a worshiper. So the thought of sections of the sanctuary being vacated or sections of the parking lot being empty is not a good thought. But I guess the more and more I think about it, the more and more I realize that worshipers are going to worship, period. And then as we stroke consumers, we can stroke them in the name of Jesus, but it's still stroking consumers. 
And these next few weeks, months, I don't know how long, through chapter 17, be very little in here about you. It's going to be a lot of Jesus. It's going to be hard, difficult, challenging preaching. There'll be probably lots of uh, difficult Saturday nights. It's going to be challenging listening. It's going to be challenging shepherding. As shepherds are trying to take this lesson into the home, take these realities into the home. told Scott this morning that I was really convicted at my wickedness that I've got to be stroked, that I've got such a consumer in me. I'm constantly asking what's in it for me. But worshipers don't ask that question. Worshipers are just overwhelmed with the reality that we're there. The me's just not in it. And I'm thinking this morning, in these next few weeks or months, they're really going to kind of ask the question and really help us diagnose the question if we can really be alone with God and be satisfied with Him, just who He is. Or if we're just in it for something. Because if you're in it for something, you're just going to be tired and frustrated. Because we're just going to bathe in the otherness of God. And the holiness of and glory of Christ. The beauty in all that is that you're impacted in a way that you would never be as a consumer. But I want to emphasize, at least this morning, my goal that we can sit and enjoy Christ and not even think about how it intersects us. Just for 45 minutes. If we're going to do it for eternity, the thought of doing it for 45 minutes That's a good goal. John chapter 13 through 17 is what's called the farewell discourse. If there's another picture of it in our Bible, probably the closest picture would be where Moses is on uh, Mount Nebo where he's been preaching and teaching and leading Israel for 40 years in the wilderness And he's on Nebo, and he's basically given the final charge to the nation of Israel. Chapters 31 through 33 would be kind of a parallel of where we're going in these next few months. Chapters 13 through 17 of of the book of John. Moses basically is telling Israel, he says, you're about to go fight the battles in the promised land, and I'm not going with you. But I've taught you what I needed to teach you. I've walked with you, and now I'm climbing to the top of the mountain to die. And Moses climbed to Nebo. Christ climbed to Golgotha. It's his farewell discourse, the final hours. These first 17 verses of chapter 13, we're going to spend at least a month, three weeks to a month in. And we're just going to bathe in it each week. We're just going to go back and hit it in a different direction. Today will be the first of those treatments. Where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning is in verses 3 through 5. I'm going to read them again, and then I'll take you specifically where we're going. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, 
This Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. As I studied this these last few months and was preparing to preach this morning, what really came into focus was verses, really verse by itself, verse 3. Two sections there, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God. As I considered verse 3, I realized that's the passage to help us understand the whole rest of the first 17 verses. If we don't really climb into verse 3 and we don't gnaw on it and we don't digest it, then we could walk away with a wonderful moral message. Man, be a servant. Look how Jesus served. Look at him. He's kneeling, man. He's washing dirty old fishermen's feet. But if we eat verse 3, and then we look at the story, then we're well on our way to worship. It's not going to be minimized, reduced to a moral message. It will come alive in full-on, full-fledged worship. So that's what I aim to do this morning. What I'm kind of hoping to do with this Two considerations of all things giving into, given into his hand and he came from God and he's going back to God. What I'm hoping to do is in some ways kind of get in like a rocket ship and to get in this rocket ship with every verse that we're going to consider in these next few minutes, probably 15 verses. We're going another, I don't know, light year. And I really thought out my space measurements there. But we're going a long way in a rocket ship and where I hope to land is in the throne room. Where I want to land is I want to look at this story of what happened with Jesus, washing feet from the vantage point, not of ground level, but from the throne room. And it will change everything. So let's start first with all things given into his hand. Turn to John chapter 5. Maybe 10 passages here. They're going to show you things that the Father has given to the Son. In order to understand this story, we've got to appreciate first that all things have been given into His hands. So let's look at what those things are, at least some of those things. Here's the first one. John chapter 5, verse 22 says, The Father judges no one, but has given judgment to the Son. Okay, so that's the first thing that the Son has in His hands, is He's got judgment. And the reality is, is that all who breathe, and all who have ever breathed, all who have ever thought, all who have ever done anything, good or bad, will stand before our Christ and be judged. Now, we know from the same book that Jesus said, I have not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But judgment is still in store. And guess who will be the judge? The one who has received all judgment in his hands. This Jesus that washed feet. The same hands that washed feet. Hold judgment of every one of you. Every one of us. All will reckon with this Jesus. Look down a few verses to verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself... So he has granted the Son also to have life in his self, or in himself. So first of all, in his hands, he's got all judgment. And according to that verse, he's got all 
life. So every life that's ever lived, every breath that's ever been drawn, is only because of this Christ. Every life and all life is in His hands. As you sit and you think about these thoughts, and as you breathe, realize that you breathe because your life is in His hands. All judgment and all life are in these hands that wash these dirty fishermen's feet. Turn to John chapter 12. Verse 49. Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. So our Christ has all judgment. He has all life in his hands. God has given him those. The Father has given him those things. He's also given him a message. Jesus didn't make up this message that he was here, or when he was, when he was here preaching and teaching. He wasn't making it up as he went along. He was preaching and teaching a message that had been given to him. And you can understand why he's so urgent about it, because he knows where it came from. And he's giving and teaching and preaching something that's been given into his hands. And he said, in fact, the true disciples, and this is an encouragement to me along the whole consumer lines in mind, the true disciples will abide in this word. True disciples won't need to be stroked with a bunch of peripheral things and told funny stories and cool email. True disciples just say, give me the book. Give me the word. Give me the story that's in those, those leather pages. I want to know what that story is. And that story has been given into his hands. So all judgment, all life, and a life-giving message are in Christ's hands. Turn to chapter 17. Beginning in verse 2. I'll start at the red letters, just a few before it. Father, the hour has come. Our Lord is praying right here. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh. So He's been given all judgment. He's been given a message. He's been given all life. And He's been given all authority over all flesh. Everything that breathes, every cell that breathes, multiplies every heart that pumps every capillary and vessel that pushes blood through a bloodstream is only because it's in his hands all flesh has been given over to him and put in his hands look at verse 4 Jesus says to the father he says I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do so he's been given work to do as well. He's been given all judgment. He's been given all life. He's been given a life-giving message. He's been given all authority over flesh. And he's been given works to accomplish. And these works he's done well. These works like changing water to wine at a wedding. These works like coming up to a dude that's been lame for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda and saying, get up. 
walk. These works of feeding multitudes, these works of walking on waves, these works of saying, Lazarus, come forth. He did them and he did them well. And in fact, he's going to do the ultimate work. It's coming right here. He's saying, having loved them, he loved them to the end. Meaning, to the cross. The ultimate work will be completed. And it will be completed well. The works were put in his hands as well. Look at verse 11. He says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, these who I am praying for. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. So he's been given all judgment, all life, a life-giving message, all authority. He's been given works well accomplished. He's been given the name of God. Whenever God revealed or spoke to uh, Moses from the bush, Moses said, who shall I say sent me when I go back to Israel and tell him I'm going to lead him out of Egypt? He said, you tell him I am that I am sent you. And it's from that phrase, I am that I am, is where his name comes from, the name Yahweh. And this is the same phrase, this I am is the same thing that Christ said. Christ said before Abraham was, I am. Repeatedly through the Gospels, Jesus reminds them, I am. When Jesus walked on the waves, it's not translated well. When Jesus walked on the waves in the Sea of Galilee and they're all freaking out, what is he doing? Is that, is that a ghost? In our versions, it says, oh, it's, it's just I. It is I. Don't be afraid. I'm coming to get in the boat. In the original language, it says, don't be afraid. I am. <laughs> don't marvel that I'm walking on the water. I'm God. This Christ bears the name of God, the name above all names. That's been given into his hands. Look at verse 22. It says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. So glory has been given into his hands. He's got that in his hands as well. And if you think about glory, you're familiar with your Old Testament some. You know that Moses also on Sinai, he asked God, he said, God, show me your glory. I'm sure God is thinking, you don't know what you just asked. You can't handle it. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll cover you with my big hand. And I'll pass by the cleft. And you'll get to see glory as I leave. You'll get to see the backside of glory because that's about all you can handle. And even then, your face is going to glow. You don't know what you've asked. What we can realize here in Christ, that that sort of glory has been given to Christ. And the amazing thing is that the whole world just wasn't consumed by His glory. That we didn't all burn up. The disciples sat there and supped with Him. The disciples sat there and had their feet washed by the glory that could have consumed them. How did He contain that glory? I don't know. But visible glory showed up, and all glory was given into his hands in this Christ. Look at verse 24. He's praying again for his disciples in this case, and he's also praying about his disciples over the ages. You and me, hopefully. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me, where I am. So all judgment has been given over to him as in his hands. All authority over all flesh 
all life. A life-giving message has been given into his hands. These works well accomplished, works that were completed, and he loved them to the end. The name above every name has been given into his hands. Glory has been given into his hands. How did it show up and not consume us? I don't know. And then a people have been given into his hands. People that have been gathered over geography and people that have been gathered over the ages have been given over into his hands. The same hands that wash feet. Look at chapter 18, verse 11. These guys have just come for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter pulls out his sword and he cuts off the uh, servant of the high priest's right, or I don't know which ear, right ear, I guess it says. Jesus takes the ear and pops it back on his head. He says to Peter, he says, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So he's been given all things into his hands, judgment, life, a message, authority, works well accomplished, a name above all names, glory. He's been given to people, you and me, and he's been given a terrible cup of incredible, ordained suffering. Not accidental, but actually ordained, planned, designed suffering. All of those things have been given into Christ's hands. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. This passage so wonderfully captures some of the things that we've seen there in those few verses in John that it's worth going to just to enjoy. Beginning in verse 15, I want you to listen to these things that are true about our Christ, about this same Christ that washed feet. It says, He, this is speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He makes the invisible visible. He's the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Many people don't know that about Christ. That he was the agent of creation. God spoke and the word went into action and created. And the word is Christ. He is the agent, the creator. And that for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So the very ground that they sup on this night... The very ground that they sit on as their feet are being washed, he created. The ground that we sit on right now, this Jesus created. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. See those big hands? You see all things in them? All dominion, all power. Verse 17, he says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That phrase has stuck with me for so long, that passage. In in him all things hold together. He's the one in whom all things hold together. If you're able to piece together a thought about what you've heard this morning already, it's only because he's enabled you to do so. 
If you're sitting, and this is just a social experiment for you, and you're not even believing on this, and you're just amazed that people are here consuming this stuff, and you're just here just kind of as a science experiment, the fact that you're even able to think those thoughts is because of this Jesus. He is the one in whom all things are held together. You think you've heard an incredible argument against Christ? That is only because God has allowed you to think that argument. You think you can piece together a design that explains his DNA, his fingerprints all around us away? That's only because all things are held together in him. It's only in him that you can even think those thoughts. It's because he's allowed you to. Our bodies aren't even contained into one solid chunk apart from him. We don't have thoughts that communicate. We don't have thoughts that are designed apart from him. He is the one in whom all things are held together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. That in everything that he might be preeminent. That word preeminent in Greek is proteon. If you've heard the word prototype, that's where that comes from. It means that he's first in everything. It's a participle. If you know anything about participle, a participle is a verbal noun. A participle of belief would be believing ones. So a participle right here of being first in everything would be the firsting one. He's the firsting one in everything. All things are in his hands. Scott and I were talking about this earlier. He's like, what does that mean, firsting one in everything? It means that he's first in Tuesday. He's first in dinner. He's first in your marriage. He's first in parenting. He's first in sitting He's first in preaching. He's first in this sermon that's only about him and not about you. He's the firsting one. All things have been given into his hands. That's what it means. He's preeminent. He is the firsting one. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth are in heaven. It's all been put into his hands. The same Jesus that washed feet is the same Jesus that created everything that you can see. The same Jesus that washed feet has all power. He has infinite domain. He has infinite reign. And if it sounds like I'm making a lot of him, you bet I'm making a lot of him. What I'm saying here is that this Jesus is God. I'm speaking of infinite godness. All things have been given into his hand. Let's deal with the second part of that. He's from God, going back to God. Turn to Psalm 11. In order to consider that phrase, he came from God and he's going back to God. We've got to consider, well, where's God? So we're going to deal with just a handful, just a couple of Old Testament passages that show us where God, as we would expect, the Father to be. Here's the first of which is in chapter 11 of Psalm, or Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. 
The Lord's throne is in heaven. Hey, God is in a distinct and separate place. While he's omnipresent, he's also centralized and focused and especially in his throne room in heaven. And this is the place where Christ came from and it's the place where this Jesus went back to. It's the place where this Jesus is now. Now I want to show you where that heaven is. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Listen to what Isaiah saw in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, the whole earth. Is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This God is in a very separate, distinct, different place than here. He's in a throne room, and that throne room is in heaven, and this place is high and lifted up. Turn to Isaiah chapter 57. Verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. See, God the Father dwells in heaven. He sits on a throne in a throne room, and that throne room is high. And it's separate and it's distinct. And it's a very different place from here. I don't know that we really have a concept or an appreciation of this infinite height. But I don't know if you've ever paid attention. and If you've read your whole Bible, you know that there's some pretty incredible moments that always happen on mountaintops. If you ever wonder why that is, is because our only way to visualize the height of God is, to envision, is, is elevation. So if God is high and lifted up, and if he's in heaven, then we've got to go to the highest place to engage him. And time and time again, there's some incredible moments that happened on mountain, mountaintops. Noah and the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. Abraham was to offer Isaac on a mountaintop. The law was given to Israel on Mount Sinai. Moses said goodbye to Israel and hello to God from Mount Nebo. Then there's the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. There's the Sermon on the Mount. There's the Mountain of Transfiguration. And then, of course, there's Golgotha. You wonder why incredible things happen on mountaintops. It's because God is high and lifted up. And the thing that I want you to appreciate about our Christ, the same Christ that has received all things into His hands, the same Christ that washed feet 
that this Christ came from this place, this high and holy and lifted up and distinct and separate place. He came, that's where he came from, and that's where he's gone now. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Our Christ, this Jesus, was in the throne room with God the Father and has always been. There was never a time when he was not. He has always been in the throne room. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Listen to these words, the first three verses, and listen to where it ends. And watch where Jesus is. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Sound like everything's in His hands. Through whom... He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That sound like infinite power? It says, After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He came from God and He returned to God. Look over at chapter 8. Verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. This Christ, this Jesus that washed feet in John chapter 13, received all things into his hand, and he came from God, and he went back to God. Turn to Revelation chapter 4. I know right now that if I were you sitting out there not having studied this, not having feasted on this, and not knowing where I'm going in these next couple minutes, that I might be kind of tired. And I see the yawns. And I know it's hard to engage some of the things that we've just engaged. And that's what I was so convicted about. That we're so wicked that we can't consider God's godness for a little while. (laughs) And I'm talking about me. Because if I were you so far, I would be kind of like, oh, I'm kind of tired too. But I've taken you someplace. And in these next two chapters, the book of Revelation, you're going to see this whole thing come together. And however tired you've been, I'm not condemning you. I've slept through my share of sermons. But in these next few minutes, you're going to see this whole thing come together. This is an illustration of all things been giving into his hand and of him having come from God and going back to God. You're going to see this in two chapters. In fact, these are my two favorite chapters in the Bible. I think they're two of the most incredible pictures. The first, chapter 4 in Revelation is the picture of the throne room vision of God the Father. And chapter 5 is the throne room vision 
of Christ. Okay? Listen to this. After this, I looked. This is written by John, likely the same writer of the book of John that we're reading from in chapter 13 this morning. It says, After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So this place that is so high, this place that's so holy, this place that's so distinct and far away, we're actually going to get a glimpse into that little tiny room up there. Now, it's probably huge, but a tiny glimpse into that big room. That's a better way to put it. A little bitty pinprick where we're going to be able to peek through and see some glory here in the next few minutes. So you're going to appreciate that Christ has all things in his hands. And you're going to appreciate what it means that he came from God, that he's gone back to God in these next few minutes as we peek through that little bitty pinhole in heaven. I looked and behold a door, a little tiny pinhole standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like like a trumpet said, Come up here, John, and I will show you what must take place after this. He's about to show him what's going to happen at the end of the age. At once I was caught up in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. This throne that we've read about today, and one seated on the throne. This is God the Father that we read about. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 elders. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Imagine the most regal man that you've ever seen in your life. Beautiful, white, 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 brilliant white hair. Stately. Just the picture of wisdom. 24 of these guys. These guys are not humans as far as I can tell. They may be the 12 patriarchs, the 12 apostles, but the fact that John is one of those apostles and they're about to talk to him and he's seeing them tells me that these things are something totally different. These are the picture of wisdom. 24 of these elders are in the throne room and their thrones are surrounding the throne of God. They've got crowns on their heads. And from the throne, this throne where the Father is seated, comes flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. Now, first of all, I want you to appreciate there's a storm coming from the throne. I've been in some storms here in Greenville in the last five years where you're inside your house, but you're still scared to death. Like, dude, that storm is coming in here. That is a picture of power. That's a picture, I mean, it's awesome power. And there's a storm coming from the throne as these elders are seated around it. And burning in front of it are seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. In the book of Revelation, seven represents the fullness, completeness. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is all there. You want a picture of the Trinity? How about here? Father seated on throne, the fullness of the Holy Spirit right in front of him, burning. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So the reason that I can say this heaven is distinct and distant and separate is because there's a sea that separates us. An infinite sea. But the beauty is, this sea is crystal. And you wonder why, yet God is distant and he's transcendent. He's still very involved in creation because he sees everything. He can see through this crystal sea. 
And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. Look at these. Just imagine these creatures. The first living creature is like a committee got together and put these creatures together. The first living creature is like a lion. The second living creature is like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature is like an eagle in flight. These critters represent all creation. They represent the best that creation has to offer. The noble lion, the fast eagle. The wise guy, man, and the ox, the picture of strength. And these four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. All day and night, they never cease to say the same thing that we heard over there in Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, look what happens to the regals. The 24 regal elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Look at the next chapter. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back Sealed with seven seals. Seven seals is a picture that that scroll is really sealed. That thing is sealed up. And you know what? That scroll's got to be opened because the rest of the story is going to be unfolded when that, ste- when that seal is opened or when that scroll is opened. And there's seven seals representing that these things are especially sealed up tight. And the Father has this scroll. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming present tense as in ongoing proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals who is he where is he shouting it over and over and over again and then all you hear is crickets crickets the only thing you hear is John. You're going to hear him next. It says, No one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. There's nobody in heaven. They've looked around. Is anybody worthy to open this scroll? Nope, nobody here. Is anybody on earth worthy? No, no one's righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Anybody under the earth? Anybody hiding that can open this scroll? Nope, sorry. And listen what John does. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John is weeping. This scroll's got to be opened. The rest of the story's going to unfold there. All eternity, glory, is going to happen when that's unfolded. Judgment. We want that scroll to be opened. Because that's when eternity with the Lord begins. But there's no one worthy. And John weeps. And then one of the elders, one of the regals, says to John, says, John, here's a hanky. 
Weep no more, lad. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. That one who washed feet. That one has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. All things have been given into his hand. Nobody's able to do it, but all things have been given into his hands. He can do it. And then next, John looks over and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, John says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. I hear Lion of Judah, I'm expecting roaring, I'm expecting in the eyes of the world you're going to see this incredible creature, but then I look over and there's a lamb standing there as if slain. That's about like God. I look over and there's a lamb standing as if slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. He's full of the Spirit sent out into the earth. And he went, this Christ, this same Jesus that washed feet, walked up to the throne of God and said, Give me that scroll. I'll open it. That's my job. I've earned it. Nobody else above the earth in heaven, on earth, that nobody hiding underneath that can do it, but I can. I'm going to take that scroll. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, these same dudes, these same regals that worship the Father, and they have been since time began, probably before that. Look what they do. They fall down before the Lamb. Somebody want to tell me that my Jesus is not God? Why are they worshiping him? Why do the 24 elders that are assigned to worship God turn and worship the Lamb? Because that is God the Son. They fall down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of the incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The prayer that we prayed a few minutes ago when we began this worship service, that's in that bowl. And that's poured out right there. And they sang, these elders start singing a new song and they're saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Worthy are you, Lamb, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you, you, Lamb, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They were given into your hands and they've been gathered over the ages. They've been gathered over space. They've been gathered over time. They've been gathered into Greenville, into a little section south of town, into Green and Cross Point Fellowship. They're gathered and they're into your hands and they shall reign on the earth then i looked and i heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels how many angels i don't know myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands you know how much a myriad is a bunch get over here angels fall in Formations right now. It's time to worship the Lamb. All angels, myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands are saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and every creature on earth, this, your voice will be in this collection. 
the reality is those of you who don't think that he's Christ, your voice will be in here too. Because you, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You will kneel and say, yes, he was Lord. He wasn't mine, but he's Lord. And here's where it is. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever and ever. And the four living creatures said, the only thing that's appropriate that I'd like to hear from y'all right now, what did they say? They said, Amen! What else can you say? That's the most true thing, the most noble thought that we may have ever thought. That worthy is He to be worshipped. They said, Amen! And the regals fell down and worshipped. Man, you want a visible, you want a visual aid, you want an illustration of what it means that all things have been given into his hand, you want to know what it looks like that he came from God, that he's going back to God, swim and bathe in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation. Peek through the pinhole of glory if you can take it. And you're going to see this lamb that washed feet. You're going to see all power. You're going to see all ability. Who's able? Crickets. The lamb is able. You're going to see our only hope in him. Now, now that we've made a trip to the throne room, and we've peeked into the throne room, now I want us to turn back around and peek back at the upper room in John chapter 13. Now it's an appropriate time for us to go back and look at what takes place because at ground level it just wouldn't be right. But from the elevation of the throne room, we can look back and see that our Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hand and that He had come from God and was going back to God, this Jesus rose from supper. This Jesus. He laid aside His outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around His waist. And then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. When he laid aside his outer garments, that was a picture of slavery. The lowest slaves would wash feet, and even Jewish slaves wouldn't wash Jewish feet. They had to use Gentile slaves to do it. It was so lowly and so menial. And this Jesus takes off his outer garments, and he kneels, and he washes dirty, nasty fishermen feet like the lowest slaves when I consider that reality through the lens of however many light years of distance we've traveled to get up to the throne room I'm looking there and I'm seeing that Christ doing what he's doing and I'm just seeing the fact that he's there and I'm thinking to myself you're not supposed to be here I'm thinking what are you doing God you're supposed to be here. We 
While it's remarkable that he washed feet, what's more amazing to me is that God supped with man. That God sat down and had a meal with man. That's scandalous. He ought to be dining with the regals. He ought to be sitting around the table with the storm. Enjoying his fellowship. What's he doing supping with man? He ought to be worshipped day and night by the myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands. What's he doing supping with man? While it's amazing that he washed feet and it's shocking that he did so, what's more shocking to me is that God wore the ragged garments of a commoner to take them off. That he was even there to take the clothing off to wash the feet. Amazes me. He should be in linen. He should be in gold and bronze. What's he doing wearing clothing of a commoner? The marvel isn't that Jesus washed feet as much as it is that he was there to kneel. What is he doing with a knee? Why does God have blood pumping through his knee? Why does he have a bone and cartilage? What is God doing? You're not supposed to be here, God. Take you to one last verse, and I want you to see it. It's the only way you can appreciate it. Psalm verses 113. Chapter 113. I'm going to read this from the New American Standard, and I want you to hear what takes place in this verse. Psalm 113, verse 4 says, The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Holy, holy, holy is He. Myriads of myriads sing about Him. These creatures sing about Him. The 24 elders fall on their faces in front of Him. Who is enthroned on high? who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. This God is so high. This God is so in his rightful place when he's in that throne room surrounded by worshipers day and night that it's humbling to even behold the heavens and the earth. It's an act of humility for him to even look on the heavens, and the earth. This guy, this God is so holy. This God is so high. This God is so perfect. This God is so majestic. For him to even look on man is an extreme act of humility. When I look at John 13 through that lens, I'm just saying, God, you're not even supposed to be here. What are you doing here? What is man that you are mindful of us? I'm thinking about these regals, these elders. 
imagining what those guys are like. I'm thinking about the Lord and the Lamb more, but I was thinking about the regals and thinking about what they must have been thinking when Jesus knelt and washed feet. The regals who have worshipped God for all eternity and will continue to worship God for all eternity, I wonder what they were thinking. I wonder if they were thinking, disciples, do you have a clue who is in your midst? Do you have any idea who you just supped with? Do you have any idea who kneels before you to wash your feet? If you only knew who kneels before you. Can't help but wonder right now what the regals are thinking about us. If they're looking on us here in Greenville. And they're thinking, maybe for an hour, 45 minutes, y'all have done justice to the glory of Christ. Maybe for 45 minutes, it had nothing to do with you. Maybe for 45 minutes, it was just about all this incredible power and dominion that's been given to Christ. Maybe we've enjoyed Him rightly today. I wonder if they're thinking, do they know who they read about and sing about? Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that we've had a glimpse of glory. Pray that we have a higher view of Christ as a result of the last few minutes that we've spent together. Pray that if there's anybody in here that's viewed Christ as just a simple man, even a moral man, before this morning, that they've been arrested with the gravity of His power and His dominion and His glory and the name that He bears and where He sits. Lord, I pray that in these last few minutes that we just enjoyed him just for the sake of who he is. Lord, we pray that these glimpses of glory will change us from the inside out. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.